Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, host of the Feast Podcast, where we dig deep into the great meals that made history. Our new season has just launched with a first episode that uncovers the myths of space food, from freeze-dried ice cream to tang. Don't miss a meal. Subscribe today to The Feast on Apple Podcasts or wherever good podcasts can be found. You are now entering the Podglomerate. But this podcast is weird, right? Like, I'm just saying these things and then you're recording them hypothetically, but I will never find them again. Just out there like a vampire. Tell my dude, what's good? Um, I am just finishing up the Adventure Zone, the final the finale and i'm definitely not crying and this uh is writers who don't write and i'm kyle and i'm jeff and kyle's referring to i think both of our favorite podcasts it's called the adventure zone it is phenomenal it's with the mcelroy brothers uh who as chance would have it are going to be guests on the show in the future we've already recorded the interview which i am so so happy about and it also gives me the most pleasure in the world to say that Kyle was not part of this interview because he had to work. Griffin did say your name though. Did he really? Yeah. What did he say? Our Zencaster. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Our Zencaster has it says Kyle Craner when we initiate it, and he thought that you were me. Ah. <laughs> ha. So I, I had to correct him mid-interview, and it was really embarrassing. That's so I was still present even though I wasn't there. They were aware of your existence, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So, but anyway, that episode will be out soon. I don't want to give you a date because there's a bunch of random factors that go into it. But what you can do is read the article that I wrote based on that interview. It's in the Daily Dot. In any case, uh, I'm super happy with it, and you all should go check it out. Um, I only mention it because it's a big day when a guy who started a podcast about not being able to write is able to brag about an article that he wrote. It's hard to hear you over the sound of you patting yourself on the back. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I but anyway, who do we got on the show? Broad back. Uh, this week on the show, we also have a really interesting episode. Uh, Sarah Novich. Uh, she wrote this book called Girl at War. Uh, it was published in 2015, but it's still getting you know mentions, and it, it won a bunch of awards. But it's super good. It's about the civil war in Croatia, which I really didn't know anything about or is it yugoslavia kyle uh it is what was the former yugoslavia okay it takes place mostly in croatia and america though and and so this is kind of the whole point of the book is that nobody knew anything about this civil war and sarah was well, kind americans of, didn't americans didn't know about the civil war and sarah was kind of shocked and she wanted to bring some attention to it um and we actually talk about why kyle and i were able to read the book and still not know a ton about it and, and what you know her logic was with that in the interview um it's really interesting i do have to say uh and i mentioned this only because uh the audio quality was affected because of this fact uh sarah is deaf so this was a really you know fun interview for kyle and i because it challenged how we usually do these things um so you might hear some like harsher cuts than normal 
Um, you can hear us you, typing. You, yeah, I was going to say you can. You'll definitely hear us typing throughout, uh, which was the way that we communicated with her. So it yeah. was a it was a new format for us. So we hope you'll bear with us while we figure out the kinks. Yeah, and I actually thought it was super interesting. Uh, at some point, and I'm I'm sorry to say that it won't be when this episode is released, probably, but keep checking back at www.podcast.com or at thepodglomerate.com slash writers who don't write. Uh, we are going to try really hard to get a transcript out, which is something we also talk about in the interview, how we don't usually do that because of all the boundaries that are there um, in terms of, like, time and price and, and like, what you would actually get on that in terms of return on investment for the majority of people out there. Um and how it really sucks that people in Sarah's position have to deal with not only, you know, that kind of disability, but also, you know, the repercussions of, of them being, you know, kind of the minority in that regard and how it feels emotionally, physically, like how much it sucks in general sometimes with random, like, specific issues. Uh, anyway, I've, this intro is going on far, far too long. Uh, I think so- it's, it suffices to say this episode took place... Uh- from a position of ignorance for us on a lot of different fronts. So we hope you'll bear with us while we try to close some of those gaps. So enjoy. This is Writers and All Right with Sarah Novich. Sarah, welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. It's hard to gather my thoughts while I'm trying to type this out. Uh, I'm a lot dumber than I thought I was. <laughs> That's nonsense. So, Sarah, tell us about your career and how your book Girl at War came to be. Well, my career. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of funny. I think I realized quite late um, that a career as a writer was a thing one could have. I'm not really sure what I thought I was doing because I was writing Girl at War for, for quite a long time. Um, but I guess I just thought it was like... Okay. I don't know, a project, a side project. And then even when I was in graduate school, I was kind of uh, working on the book, but still, I don't know, it didn't feel like a book or that a writer was like the only job I could have. It's, I mean, it's not the only job I have. I, I also teach, so I guess that's still true. But anyway, um, yeah, I started writing Girl at War when I was an undergrad. Um, I think I was maybe a sophomore. And I wrote a short story, and I brought it to a professor of mine. Um, and he was like, this is really good. You should write a novel about this. And I was like, mm, yeah, don't, don't think so. Thanks, though, buddy. And uh, I kind of kept expanding on it anyway, just because the idea was interesting to me. Um, and the main character changed from a, a little boy to a little girl, but actually the seed of the story kind of stayed the same throughout. And that's the end of part one, um, where the book, the way the book is now. So that's that's kind of a little bit of the beginnings of the book anyway. So why was the idea interesting to you? As a book? Um, I was living in Croatia before I started college and um, I have family and friends there so then when I came back to school uh, or to to start school I kind of was expecting oh these are people who are in college also I was the first person in my family to go to college so I was I had no idea what to expect but I was like oh college people they're going to be smart they're going to know about this war which is was something that was you know important to me and they're going to know you know what had happened here 
Uh, but of course, that wasn't the case. In fact, most people had never even heard of Croatia at that point because you know this was pre-Game of Thrones. Uh, so no, no King's Landing or whatever the hell Dubrovnik is on TV. Um, and I started writing that very first short story out of anger, actually, because I was like, I want to tell, um, you know, I want people to understand that this was a thing that happened when, you know, when everyone in the room was alive, even though, you know, we were little kids, but it was something that faded from the American memory so quickly that it really bothered me. And that was actually part of the original story, which it, it is in the book as well, that the character was kind of struggling to come to terms with how to tell the story about his past at the time it was a boy again so uh how long was the process as a whole from the time you came up with the concept to when you first saw it in print i think forever <laughs> so i was a sophomore that's <laughs> like three years and then i worked for at least a year after four five six maybe six or so years seven maybe even um, yeah, it, oh, wow. it really took a long time. And, th and also, even after I sold it, um, there were substantial changes that I made, which I feel really lucky about. I think it made the book a lot better. And David Ebershoff is an amazing editor. And something that a lot of people don't get anymore are like edit big, huge overhaul edits um, for a book. So a lot of changes made, particularly to the second section of the book, um, where Anna is in America as an adult. How long did you spend in the editing process? Um, with David and Random House, I think it was about a year, probably, maybe even a little more if you count all the copy editing and uh, the galleys and all that. And you were teaching all the time? Um, yeah, I was, I was teaching, uh, <laughs> I was teaching a couple different places. I was teaching at the Fashion Institute of Technology. I was teaching at this Orthodox Jewish school that was like utter. It was it was amazing. The students were amazing, but I showed up the first day and I got yelled at because I was wearing the wrong clothes and I wasn't allowed to wear pants and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so that was all happening. And also I was editing <laughs> this book at the same time. Teaching, right? Yeah, I was teaching... Uh, mostly essay writing for for undergrads and sometimes creative writing too but usually at the college uh college classes all different levels of students so sorry i well i got confused um did i don't know if, if teaching really um changed that book i feel like it was such a long time coming that at the point when I was making the edits it was it was like a different plane of reality almost but te I think teaching has changed me as as a writer for sure I think about clarity um, automatically now in a way that I didn't used to in the way that um, you kind of have to teach a reader how to read something so that's something that I talk a lot about with my students um, because as undergrads, they're kind of not used to writing multiple drafts of a thing still. That's still a thing that, <laughs> that I'm trying to get them to think about a lot. So um, just <laughs> transitioning an idea from the order that it is in your head to maybe that's not the actual order it should stay in forever is something that I think about 
automatically myself as a writer now, whereas it took me a long, long time to find the structure and order for Girl at War, too, and I think I maybe would have been better at it if I had been thinking about things like that at the time. Was it a conscious decision to not really lay out a Wikipedia-style explainer of the Croatian War in the book? Was it a conscious decision? It was a conscious struggle, man. Um, I, I think I thought a lot and worried a lot about how much historical context to provide for the reader and at the end of the day I decided um, that because the book was from a child's perspective it was really important for me to not kind of overstuff it with an information dump about what happened and why this happened and just kind of focus on the honest way that she would be confused about a lot of things but at the same time, try to provide ways that readers could kind of see around her or over her head a little bit. Um, but yeah, it it was a lot of back and forth, and sometimes I would overdo it, and people would be like, "Wow, this part's really boring." So <laughs> then, then I would take it out. Um, but also, the other thing about the book for me is that it's not actually, you know, an epic, a war epic. It's kind of um, a really intimate story of war so it can't possibly say everything about what happened in that war why it happened it goes you know the reasons go back hundreds of years uh and are really different from, depending on whose perspective you're you're looking at of course so it was kind of also part of the reason why i decided to to give less historical information and more kind of focus on the emotions of of how it would be to live through that in hindsight, are you happy with that decision? For example, did you wish that you wrote this in third person in order to add more exposition? Um, in hindsight, I think I'm happy. I, I'm happy with Anna as the narrator. I don't think we see a lot of war stories from female perspectives. Um, and honestly, women and children are the people who are most affected by most wars. We think a lot of it um, about we think a lot about it from soldiers' perspectives, and of course that's a huge part of it, but if we look at the, the damage done, it's, it's usually more on the home front, and we don't hear those voices as much. I think there needs to be other books about this war. This is not the only book that can be, and we need big old third-person, many points of view stories about this war too, but I'm, I'm happy that Anna tells this particular story. Um, you mentioned having worked through a couple of different structures. Can you point out some of the deciding factors for the final structure that you ended up going with? Yeah, I um, I always knew that I wanted this story to go back and forth in time. Um, the original short story that I wrote that the book was based on also did that, and it was kind of an integral part of the idea behind the book, this kind of like inability to cope years on. Um, so I, I always kind of wanted this feeling of flux and kind of maybe intrusions, like traumatic intrusions. So that I knew, but I just didn't know what order to put it in at all. Um, so I played around with lots of different orders. I played around where it started in the present and jumped back. And that was terrible because everyone was like, why is this girl such a jerk? She's so grumpy and shitty all the time. And I was kind of like, 
well, you know, but she really earned it. I promise. <laughs> but you can't, you know, you can't sit there and say that <laughs> while someone's reading your book. So I realized I had to change that. I also like <laughs> played a, a lot around with um, different, like how, how big of a chunk something should be. Um, like I, I did a version where it went back and forth pretty much every chapter and that was kind of too confusing. Um, but I always knew that I wanted it to break um, right at the end of where it breaks in part one. So that was like a spot that I knew it needed to jump and then everything else was kind of in flux and in what order that happened changed a lot. How does memory play a piece in this story? I think it's a big part of the story. Um, obviously, the way that it moves, I think, kind of mimics the way that trauma or, you know, part three is in the war again. So it's even though she's in the present, like this thing keeps coming back into her consciousness. And that's something I thought about with the structure. Um, and also just the way that she remembers certain things and how after 10 years of being away, Luca, her best friend, remembers them really differently or doesn't think about them at all anymore because he's kind of in that same place um, was something that I thought about a lot while I was writing the book. So I think it's a big, it's a big part of the book and it's a big part of the reality of this war, how we remember it, how it gets written down in history textbooks is going to determine definitively whether or not it happens again. Uh, so it's kind of a big deal. Is that larger war epic something you'd consider writing after this experience? I don't know if I could. I'm, I'm kind of afraid of Confess, true confessions. I'm, I'm kind of afraid of the third person. Um, the, the new project that I'm working on right now is in third person, and it's, it's the longest thing I've ever written in third person. Um, and it's, you know, it's not done or even, it doesn't even make sense yet. But um, so I don't know if I have the capacity to write that book. Or, you know, it would just, it would be so much research. I did a ton of research for Girl at War, and it was, like, just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, does a large war epic have to be in the third person? I mean, one of my favorite parts of Girl at War is how personal the larger conflict becomes through the views of small characters. Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't. I just always think of, of epics as these kind of big, sweeping, omniscient uh texts or like yeah but I, but I guess you could do it where you had lots of different first persons as well um, that would be cool <laughs> alright bye <laughs> a big old tome <laughs> Sarah I'm curious about other aspects of your career you teach writing you edit writing and you write books and you do all of this very successfully <laughs> <laughs> in your mind, was there a path that got you here? Since so many people really don't make it that far, and they have that kind of ambition. I mean, I'm I'm flattered. You think I'm successful? No, <laughs> I. Uh, it's so hard to say. You know, I think a lot of it is luck and timing. Um, you know, and the people that I met in the graduate program at Columbia. Um, friends actually more than teachers really helped me like my friend uh, 
wrote this really great story. It was in Granta, and all the agents were swarming after her, and we were all so excited. And she was like, this is so great, except for I haven't written a novel, so maybe you should email them. So I wrote my agent now this really dumb email that was like, hi, my friend gave me an email address. I'd love to send you my book. Um, so it's, it's, it was like, it was really, that, that part of it was really luck and, and the generosity of friends. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I didn't know that writing was a job that one could have. And I've actually really fallen in love with the editing aspect of things. Um, Blunderbuss has been so fun to get to read all these different stories that come our way and kind of curate a certain aesthetic of wily, plot-driven, crazy short stories from all, you know, really different writers, I think. Um, so that was, that was a big surprise to me, honestly. Um, but I'm just glad that I get to be around words all the time. They were, you know, that was always my, as a kid, <laughs> I used to write in a journal and, um, my mom actually forced me to write in a journal when I was a kid because I was really shy and all the teachers thought there was something wrong with me. Uh, so she thought it would be good for my feelings or whatever. <laughs> and, um, but I, I, I have the original journal that was kind of just the, fir the first half of it is iterations of this is really stupid because I had to like write a page or something every day. And then, you know, you can kind of see me slowly starting to enjoy it more, but then, you know, trying to hide that I'm enjoying it and then just being like, oh, fuck it. I like this and <laughs> writing a lot. So that was kind of my, my first love was always words and it came early and I'm just happy that I get to do stuff with words all the time in different capacities. You're like, you can't make me enjoy it. <laughs> I hate this. You were wrong. <laughs> you can't make me enjoy it, Mom. When did the idea that you could write as a career start to seem real to you? When I sold the book. <laughs> <laughs> um... It didn't feel, it really never, it still doesn't feel real, honestly. It's crazy when I see the book in the store, like, by itself, not in my house. I'm like, what are you doing out here? You should probably come home, it's dark. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's a great surprise every time. I love it. And I feel really lucky for it to have happened to me. It, it doesn't feel real still. Uh, that's it. It must be an incredible feeling. How does it feel that people are still discussing the book years later? Insane! It feels crazy. Um, it's honestly, I I didn't think that I was. I mean, I didn't. I didn't really think about the audience aspect of of writing until. Um, really late in the process and I, I mean I did think about it in terms of like well, does this make sense but not as like actual real people in reality it just didn't occur to me um, and that has been so great um, particularly for an, an introverted like person like me I'm, I'm still really shy I get freaked out around people and I really like doing book events and getting to talk to people and email with people about the book it, it always takes me by surprise when 
uh, somebody has like a real vis visceral emotional connection to Anna and um, it's it's just really nice because I hung out with her for so long and now other people are hanging out with her out there oh, it's really nice <laughs> I read your essay in The Guardian about writing while deaf not being able to read your work out loud when people like Stephen King say that's the key to success can you chat with us about that a bit? yeah um it's weird. It's a weird thing to work in English where everything is so, you know, hearing speech centric, just even in the way that we talk. Like, I hear you means I understand you. If you look at the newspaper, any newspaper within like a 500 mile radius is going to have a headline that's like, it fell on deaf ears when they're trying to say those people were not paying attention. Um, or wolf, you know, or we're willfully ignoring something, which is really frustrating. Um, so it feels like you're kind of working. Sometimes feels like you're kind of working against the grain, in that sense. Um, I don't think I need to hear myself, like read my work out loud. But uh, so many pictures. I, I totally agree with you. And um, that kind of had me down, I guess, while I was writing <laughs> that Guardian piece. I was like, oh, all these like important writers are like saying these are the rules of writing or whatever you know um, but of course that's all nonsense uh, and also I do read my work aloud sometimes just to feel the like rhythm of the sentences because that's something that I um, care about a lot as a person who cares about rhythm and vibration maybe above average uh, but this podcast is weird, right? Like, I'm just saying these things, and then you're recording them hypothetically, but I will never find them again. Just out there like a vampire. I, I, don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean to bring it up when it may be a tough subject, but I do think it's an important aspect. Oftentimes, we deal with the fact, the fact that it's expensive to transcribe our interviews. And unfortunately, we, we often decide it's not worth it. So I'm sorry, because if it's not in front of us, sometimes we just don't think about it. Is that something you've had to deal with your whole life? How do you get around it, if ever? I mean, it's a thing that, yeah, it's everywhere, right? I mean, just recently, there are some movie theaters where you can actually pick the movie that you want to go to. Um, before, like a couple of years ago, it was like, this is the showing with captions and it's Transformers 4 and it's at 10 o'clock in the morning and go fuck yourself. So now some of the movie theaters have these like individualized caption things, which are terrible because they're just a piece of plex plexiglass and they're running the captions backwards against on the back wall and you have to kind of catch the reflection of them to, to read the captions and watch the movie at the same time. But... Um, Anyway, so that's just like one example of, of, of just normal life. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people just don't think about it. Just like you said, if it's not in front of you, you don't, you don't think about it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's super frustrating. Usually I um, ignore it or just like, you know, go do something else, like read a book. And sometimes I rage about it on Twitter. It just kind of depends on my mood, I guess. <laughs> Twitter is a place of rage.
What do you like to read? I love books. Um, I'm a Zadie Smith fangirl, so, you know, everything by Zadie Smith. If you haven't read them, you should find Zadie Smith's movie reviews for The Guardian that she wrote in, like, 2008. For some reason, someone made her the movie reviewer for The Guardian for a time. I think it was The Guardian. And it is the best thing ever. It's like Zadie Smith reviewing, like, Iron Man or something. It's incredible. Um, anyway, yeah, so big fangirl. What else? I mean, I like a lot of historical fiction. I really like plot-driven stuff. I think maybe you can probably tell by my writing. <laughs> um, I like I like some action in my books. I'm trying to think. What have I read this summer? Well, I actually read um, the new Ryan Gaddis book. I'm not sure if it's out yet or... Yeah, I think it just came out, but I had a galley of it, and it's great. It's called Safe, and that was a big action-y thrillery crime book novel um i loved and i'm right now reading a galley of a, a friend's memoir uh called after the eclipse about her mom's murder and her kind of like dealing with the aftermath and the author of that is sarah perry that's coming out in september i'm plugging it because it's great and uh yeah that's what i've been reading lately I know you're a part of Words After War, which is a big friend of the show. Is it odd being in that realm when you aren't a veteran yourself? No, um, it feels completely norm normal, and I feel like the guys at Words After War are some of my closest buddies in New York. Um, that's been a great program. I mean, also Words After War is kind of special uh, with respect to veterans workshops because it's built to kind of bring civilians and veterans together. Um, so there are other civilian students and they're just kind of people who are interested in writing war fiction or, or family members of people who serve. So it's kind of the perfect forum for it. And I think that the level of writing and the, on the craft level is really kind of elevated because of the mix of all different people who are actually coming there, not only because of their interest or tethered to war or the military, but actually, first and foremost, the writing is the thing. Uh, have you found writing workshops useful? Uh, first of all, you were writing Girl at War, and now that you're on to your next novel? I haven't actually workshopped any of this new novel, um, but yeah, Girl at War, I wrote some of while I was in the MFA program. And it's really hard to workshop a novel, I think, um, because you can't give everybody the whole thing at once. And so sometimes you end up spending your whole workshop, people have questions about a thing that is going to get answered in the next chapter, and you can't say shit because you're supposed to just sit there and, and take it in. So that can be really frustrating. But overall, I think the workshop process can be really valuable. Um, I learned a lot from it just by workshopping short stories, and I think those kind of skills that I got out of that about plot and pacing and narrative can be applied to novels, certainly, but I think it can be really hard to workshop a novel in parts, for sure. Also, I had a really weird experience with Girl at War where a, a teacher of mine uh, told me that it wasn't worth writing because we already had a lot of Holocaust books. 
Um, so that was a good lesson Oof. for me as a teacher because I was wow. like, wow, you could really fuck a student up <laughs> with what you say offhand. You know, I don't know if she really put that much thought into a comment because it doesn't actually make sense when you think about it. But it definitely stopped me from writing the book for like a few months. I, I had like a tantrum. I mean, not, not in the class, but I had a private tantrum and th threw it out. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, never writing this dumb book again. And then like a few months later, I was like, all right, I'm writing the dumb book again. But um, yeah, you can really, you, you, as a teacher, you can really affect a student pretty, um, pretty strongly um, in both directions, of course. So that was, that was a learning moment for me, for sure. Well, we're glad you pulled it back out of the trash. <laughs> yeah me too um, do you have a strategy for how to get the most out of them uh, writing workshops that is like how you pick and choose what you're going to show to the class um, well now I think yeah it's just the same kind of idea like even if I was going to show an ex excerpt of something I would want it to be something pretty self-contained that prevents like outside digressions um, but also uh, the thing about workshop is kind of learning to find your readers, right? You can't write a book that everyone will, will like all the time. So, um, a workshop is a great place to be like, okay, here's, you know, eight people and maybe two of them are going to like this and I'm going to find them and then I'm going to hone in on what they say. And I'm going to obviously take into consideration what everyone says because everybody's got a good idea once in a while even if they're not the target audience for the for the work right um but yeah that's uh i think finding finding a reader and finding who you're talking to is an important part of being a writer oh man i'm turning into my dad everyone everyone has a good idea once in a while i think my dad has some saying that's like even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while or something yeah. Oh, man. Uh, not to bring this to a dark place, but I'd love for you to chat about refugees for a little bit in the context that you wrote a fictionalized account of a refugee crisis that was far from American minds. And now we seem to be in that same boat again. If you had to tell the American people one thing to do or pay attention to, what would it be? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> It's so hard to pay attention now on the brink of apocalypse. Yeah. I, I feel fatigued um, looking at the news, and it's, it's really hard to have the don't kind of... I don't even know what it is to be able to kind of discern what it is that we should be focusing on. Discernment, I guess, to, to be able to discern. Hello. Um, yeah, I mean... It's kind. It's really a shame for me to see the way that immigration and and refugee immigrants and refugees are being treated in in the country, or or those who are trying to get into the country. Just the mentality that's surrounding it is is really upsetting. A lot of people are dying. A lot of kids are dying. And you know we have the capacity to help, and we're not. And you kind of it's really hard to get people to pay attention to it when there's so many other terrible things going on legitimately terrible also life-threatening the healthcare crisis here is like that that's also going to kill a lot of people it's really hard when the stakes are so high so 
I don't have a good answer to that, but we have to try and pay attention to all of it, and it's like a full-time job. Amen. Damn. Uh, well, now might be the time to pivot to the story you've struggled to tell. We bring writers onto the show to talk about the stories they've had trouble telling in the past, and you shared with us a couple of examples before the show, but is there one in particular that you'd like to talk about based on what we've been discussing? Hmm. <laughs> I, I mean the. <laughs> we we get that a lot. I don't know. Standard reaction. <laughs> I think um, I guess the the Trump <laughs> stuff is obviously on everybody's mind. It's kind of it, it it almost feels like cheating to say it's hard for me to write about all this political stuff because it's hard for everyone to write about it. But um. Uh, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, in particularly in the context of uh, religion and the way religion works in a, in America. And it's hard for me to write about for a lot of reasons. One, because it's kind of an emotional soft spot for me. And um, also, I don't want to hurt my family. So it so- sounds like something that you guys mentioned. You know, we, we try to protect our families uh, as writers and it's hard and it stops us from writing often so i guess we could talk about that if that works uh i feel like religion is always a struggle to discuss for any number of reasons but personal ones are especially difficult to get past can you talk about why it seems more important now uh to talk about that stuff i think um for me it feels more important because you can kind of i mean it seems like the a big part of Trump's base or a sizable portion of Trump's base is kind of the evangelical um, circuit that's voting, you know, pro-life, and that's why they're voting, and they're white, and they're willing to kind of bank on that whiteness and say, you know, I'm going to vote for a, a guy who's saying it and, and doing a lot of unchristian technically thing, things because I know that it can't really hurt me. Um, because I'm white and I just care about abortion or something. Um, so that, that, to me, it feels important because that seems part of the reason why we are where we are right now. And then on top of that, it kind of factors into the, all the social components of the policy that we're discussing now, the health care, the immigration, and the way that these stances that the right is taking that seems in such stark contrast to kind of any basic (laughs) tenets of of biblical teaching, especially the New Testament. Um, So, yeah, I think think it's important to talk about. um, And there's also this really interesting thing I've been thinking a lot about lately. I want to write about if I can, but, you know, I might chicken out. I went to the Ark. Have you guys heard about the Ark? Noah's Ark? I have not. Um, no. So there's an Ark, a Noah's Ark, a life-size Noah's Ark built to biblical specifications, which is 300 cubits, in case you're interested, uh, in Kentucky. And you can go to it really? and walk around in it, and it's a museum for creation science. Uh, and the, and I've been, I went to the ark. So 
inside the ark, the ark is filled with baby dinosaurs, animatronic baby dinosaurs, because God said two of everything, right? So everything, there must have been dinosaurs as well, because we know dinosaurs existed, so they had to be in the ark. <laughs> that sounds adorable. I wish it was adorable, but it was really scary um, because of the way that the descriptions were written in part because it's set up like a science museum, but the, all the plaques are kind of yelling at you. Like, if you think uh, evolution is real, or if you're a Christian who thinks maybe God <laughs> used some evolutionary, like, tactics to help move things along, then you're an idiot and you're going to hell. Like, essentially, that's like what, what they, they say. And I think the literal, you know, this kind of literalist interpretation of the Bible is really kind of freaky. Um, and also then makes, and then in turn kind of makes me question, like, what, what do we value as Americans, this kind of glorification of STEM um, studies is so hardcore, all this standardized testing, would there be pressure on people to even invent a thing like creation science which is just weird if we didn't you know say everything is invaluable except for science if if we as as a people thought oh actually you can learn something from reading books uh, of fiction or history or philosophy then maybe we wouldn't feel the need to kind of put these things in opposition with one one another um yeah anyway there are lots of animatronic baby dinosaurs in the bottom of the ark That's in really Kentucky. And it got taxpayer money paid for those dinosaurs, <laughs> friend. <laughs> That's a really interesting perspective. Uh, that's American exceptionalism, right? Or maybe I have that wrong. The idea that competition solves all of our problems, instead uh, it might be preventing us from having a more open conversation. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I don't know if American exceptionalism is the same thing as competition solving all of our problems, but I think competition solving all of our problems is a huge part of this problem <laughs> specifically. Um, I mean, a couple of studies that I noticed that recently came out with, were that <laughs> Christians are, you know, way more likely to blame poor people, uh, you know, for being lazy, for, for being, blame poor people for being poor, um, and that kids who are raised in Christian or religious, traditional religious households, Judeo-Christian households, I think, um, are less likely to be altruistic than their secular peers. So, um, I think, I don't know, it, it feels to me like a weird kind of braid of capitalism and religion that we've, we've made right now. And it just also <laughs> tying back to this like hyper literalist interpretation of thing. It's it's almost like a failing of the imagination, right? Because I think that's what empathy is in the end is just like to be able to picture yourself in in another person's position. And if you don't have the capacity to imagine or make an abstract like thought, then then you get this. I guess. <laughs> it's like a weird American boondoggle. Boondoggle is an amazing word. No, put it in our stories right now. Sarah, I want to ask you about some of the negative criticism you got for Girl at War in the context of tolerance or the lack of it. 
Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'm thinking specifically of the Irish Times review. And honestly, that woman just seemed like she hated you. I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> that was a really weird <laughs> review. I'll tell you right now, I don't actually read my reviews, but I read that review, and that was the first one I read, and I was like, I cannot read reviews ever again because I read <laughs> that, and then I sat on the couch for like two hours and was like, writing is terrible. What am I doing with my life? And then I, and then I got an email from David that was like, it's all fine. Just be like Serena Williams and just look at the pictures and never read your reviews. And I think a lot of writers say that they don't <laughs> read their reviews and they actually do, but I really don't anymore. And it was all thanks to Irish Times critic. Um, and you know what? In the end, it was a gift. So, so but to, to what she said, um, I think the frustrating thing about it for me was that her review was historically inaccurate um, and there was nothing I could yes. do to respond yes, to it, it was. without seeming like you know a defensive prick or whatever. Um, so if there was one thing I could say about it, I just wish that people would know that yes, um, Zagreb did get bombed and that was a real thing that happened and killed people. So... Um, <laughs> A simple Google search proved her wrong. It's crazy. I I don't know how that got by her editor. It, it's wild. But but I ask in the sense that I'm curious how you deal with it and move forward in a positive way. I.e., how do you brush your shoulders off? Laugh at your own joke. No, but I think it's something that's really important for writers, especially new ones. Yeah, I mean, like I said, at the end of the day, it gave me a strategy moving forward. I was like, okay, this, um, you know, person is mean-spirited, and um, also there's nothing I can do about it now. Like, the book is in print. I can't change it. Not everyone's going to like it, and this is how it is. So I can choose to read these things, and or I can choose to not read these things. And that really kind of helped me along with that decision. But, um, yeah, I guess that, that's really all you can do is kind of say, you know, this thing I write is me, one human, writing something and not all the other humans of the world are going to like it or, um, you know, care. There's, they're definitely not going to care about it in the same way that I cared about it. And a lot of times they'll care about it in different ways or have really good experiences with it. And sometimes they're going to fucking hate it. And that is okay. Um. <laughs> that is a fact. Life would be way easier if it wasn't. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much uh, for working through this with us. That was Sarah Novich on Writers Who Don't Write. Thank you so much for bearing with us uh, with some of the recording uh I don't even want to call them an issue, but the situational recording environment that we were in. Uh, you can find Sarah's work at Sarah-Novich, N-O-V-I-C. It's S-A-R-A-N-O-V-I-C.com. You can find her on Twitter at Novich Sarah and on Instagram at Photo Novich. 
Uh, she is a good follow all over the place. She's super smart, as you can tell from this interview. Uh, she has a different perspective on everything. You should pick up Girl at War, available wherever books are sold. Uh, subscribe to her newsletter and follow her on social media to find out when all of her other work is out. I'm not actually sure if we mentioned this in the interview, but she is also the fiction editor at Blunderbuss Magazine. Uh, she is a teacher, she is a writer, and she is actively involved in the Words After War nonprofit, uh, a literary nonprofit. Uh, she's the third guest on the show out of the 41 episodes that we've released um, who's been involved in that. So you should check them out online. Uh, just Google Words After War and you'll, you can't miss them. It's a really, really amazing organization. See how you can help. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us online at www.podcast.com or at thepodglomerate.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, it would be really amazing if you would you know, share any episode that you love with your friends. Uh, you could tell them about it over dinner. You could send it along to them on social media. You can email them a link. We don't pay to promote the shows. That's the only way that it gets out to more people. And the more people that listen, the better we can make these episodes and the more frequently. So it would behoove you if you were to share this and, you know, convert somebody else into a new listener. Uh, we are all over social media, www.podcast, www.pod on Instagram. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you should check out all of the other amazing shows on The Podglomerate. Uh, you can find that at thepodglomerate.com. Um, we want to thank Ryan Dan for the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour, and also uh, Ben Sound for the music that you heard right in the middle, right before the ad. Uh, that is bensound.com. It's a Creative Commons track. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be back. We haven't really decided which episode we're going to release, but we have a handful of them that are all amazing, so I'm sure you're going to love it. Stay tuned, and we'll see you in two weeks. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.